Got it. Thank you, Andrew, so much for the the gracious invitation. I really did feel a, a, a kindredness uh, to our spirits when we connected. And uh, I think part of that is who you are and also how much love and admiration I have for the Salvation Army and all of the work that you pioneers are doing. So I know you've had a, a full week that your hearts and minds are full. Um, and so thank you for receiving me on tonight. Uh, tonight, uh, just as Andrew said, we're going to talk about what is the spirit saying? And as we get started, that is more a question to you than any answer that I am going to deliver. Because when we stop asking the question, what is the spirit saying day and night, we are already off track. We have been given the Holy Spirit. That's what birthed the church so that we can wake up day after day, hear what the spirit is saying and walk in that direction. And so I would say, if you leave here with your hearts and minds asking, what is the spirit saying? And then as was, it seems said in your, one of the earlier sessions, and what am I willing to do about what the spirit is saying? That'll be enough. You have, we will have accomplished what we have set off to do tonight. So um, you've already got a way to get an easy A. <laughs> As I prayed, I do have some things that I want to present for your thought. And I believe a lot of the things I'm going to present will be familiar. Like, oh, we as the Salvation Army, we know how to do that. We've been doing that since our inception. That's okay. Because I think part of what the Spirit is saying is along this refocus theme, the world needs who the Salvation Army is right now. We as the body of Christ make up these different parts. And as we come together and, and show the world a true picture of who God is, that is the way movement moves forward. So we will do this in two sessions. Uh, I'm going to start off talking by, for about 15 minutes. I will give you a question to ponder in breakout rooms and to discuss, and then we will go into the second part, and I'll share again for 15 minutes of a question at the end. So I'm one of those pastors who uh, desperately is against uh, movies as sermon series. <laughs> I am not, what I, I mean, no offense to anybody who loves them. I just personally do not love them. Uh, we do not have a summer at the movies at our church. But this year, I broke my own rule and passionately fought for a sermon series on the newer Disney movie, Encanto. Something about the combination of catchy lyrics and family trauma just got me right here. And one of the key things about Encanto, and I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, you should see it, um, is that there's this house that the Madrigal family lives in, the main family, but it is falling apart. And there's a character who keeps going back to the cracks and patching them together and, and repairing the fractures and making sure that the, the house stays intact and that the family can continue to live their lives because they don't have to recognize the cracks that are in the walls. And when I saw this movie and these, this uh, fracturing house, it reminded me of the scripture that the spirit gave me during the pandemic and maybe some of you as well. It was Hebrews uh, 12, 26 through 27, which reads, but now he has promised once now, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken so that that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. 
All of this shaking is done so that we, as heirs of salvation, receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and to God be the glory for that. The shaking that we have experienced over the past couple of years has revealed fissures and injustices that we could just ignore on an ordinary day. And these days have been anything but ordinary. These are fissures like the differences in wealth between nations, growing income inequality that exists within nations, racial justice, racial differences that have shown themselves and differences in mortality rates with COVID and differences in policing. Even the value of a life, it seems, that's different between an essential worker and a white collar worker that could work from home. This shaking has also laid bare the weaknesses in our religious rituals and the churches that were hanging on by the barest of threads have been cut in half again as people have not returned. Two years on, and some days it feels like the shaking continues nearly unabated. Like the aftershocks of an earthquake, as soon as we get our feet under us, a new variant or a new injustice or a new election threaten it all again, and instability has become a stable thing. But through all of this, we don't mourn as those without hope, because I believe that this is by design. You see, I know us, <laughs> and I know that if the shaking would stop, we would immediately start to rebuild. In fact, some of us have tried it a couple of times to no avail. But what is abundantly clear is that we cannot keep building on the fractures. Like the magical family in Encanto, the house needs to fall in some places so that we can rebuild on a firm foundation. So this shaking doesn't need to trouble us. We're happy to let it fall again so that we can see the rebuilding. As part of my work as a sociologist, I get the pleasure of interviewing pastors. And it's a joy because I talk to people from all different denominations and all walks of life and all backgrounds. And just last week, I had the pleasure of interviewing a person who I think might be the happiest pastor in America. Most pastors, when I ask about the past couple of years, they're like, oof, I'm not sure if I can do another day. But this guy, this guy was like, this two years has been the most fulfilling of my ministry career. And I'm like, are you paying attention? <laughs> what is going on with you? And so getting past my surprise and my shock, I start asking this pastor about the church he oversees. And what I learned was this. The church has a medical center that employs 600 and sees over 20,000 a year, a thing that we need still in America because we don't think healthcare is a human right, but that's another story for another day. The church has a thousand units of housing to help people who can't afford rising home prices. The church has been instrumental in bringing a nice grocery store to a food desert. The church has its own restorative justice system, which helps to keep people out of the criminal justice system because the police can refer people back to them. And it also gives a second chance to people who have fallen into the criminal justice system. The church has a drug and alcohol rehabilitation home for young men. The church has a mile and a half long corridor that it controls with strong Wi-Fi. Any child who needs a place for care or a safe place to do virtual school could find it in one of their buildings. 
Now, none of this is to say that that church was unscathed. They lost people to COVID. People in the medical center especially suffered from depression and anxiety based on what they saw, and the polls on this pastor were more urgent than ever. Yet he was the happiest of all the people I spoke to. You see, our long lost normal wasn't good enough. It was just what we were used to. And this pastor knew that. That's why he was so happy because he has seen these fractures open up. And instead of building on the fractures, he gets the opportunity to build the kingdom of God, like so many of you are doing and have done and must continue to do. When you're building the kingdom, you can look at systems that are failing and and push them to the side in favor of, of kingdom solutions. So if healthcare doesn't work, that's no problem because the kingdom has a solution. If criminal justice doesn't work, that's no problem because the kingdom has a solution. If education doesn't work, that's no problem because the kingdom has a solution. Now, this is not to say that we divest ourselves from public life. We vote. We support good government policies for the poor and the marginalized. A, because it reflects well on Christendom, and B, because these things are important and our work gets a lot harder without them. But we recognize that we can no longer build on the fractures because we live in a time of inaugurated eschatology. This new reality was ushered in by Jesus's death and resurrection. And we are witnessing the growth of an unstoppable kingdom a time when the spirit makes anything and everything possible. If I were to ask most people if they believe this, most people would say, yes, theologically, that is what I believe. That is what I've been taught. And that lines up with my denomination's theology. But I see all sorts of evidence to the contrary in the ways that people look at and talk about today. Most prominently, I see people who look at times like now and see it as evidence of inescapable wickedness. They throw up their hands and they say, this is what it's going to be like until Jesus comes back. May it never be. Instead, we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Every nation is welcomed in when the kingdom of God grows from person to person, step to step. And he tells another parable. The kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. You see, friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. And it is working through the world and spreading through every believer. And it, because of it, we have the right to reimagine a world remade through God's spirit. This is what, in reality, we are praying when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't have to settle for less. And what the Salvation Army has long recognized is that this kingdom isn't all or even mainly about religion. Though Jesus came preaching a holistic gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God, we have often boiled that down to salvation from sins. Now, don't mistake me. Salvation is the greatest, most miraculous thing that God has ever done, but it is way too small a scope for God's kingdom. The kingdom of God starts, means that the world starts to look like Jesus is in charge of every system and every relationship. 
It's like criminal justice. If Jesus were police officer and barrister and judge, it's like education. If Jesus were teacher and head of school and education minister, you name it. Once again, when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we are calling this into existence. And not only are we calling it as something that is a far off possibility, it's something that we can reasonably expect. When we look at the world this way, we come to realize that despite all of the good that has been done, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of the transformation that is possible through Christ followers. When we look at the world this way, it gives us a sort of clear-eyed optimism. This is the kind of optimism that looks at the world and sees it as it is. It doesn't need to cover up. It doesn't need to say that things are better than they are. Instead, it faces the stark realities of, of all we are confronted with. And it says, the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is here. And it can come through me in this area. The other thing that it does is it stops incrementalism. This idea that we can help a little on the margins, but the systems of the world will remain fundamentally flawed. I don't see that. I see a kingdom, again, that is expanding and unstoppable and will work its way through all of the dough, through all of the world. What it also does is it stops the focus on post hoc solutions. It is one thing to help somebody who is stuck in the mud to reach down and help them out, and we must do that. But it is quite another thing to go upstream and see where the dam has failed that is creating all this mud that people are falling into. As Dr. King said, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. There's only one thing that can slow down this restructuring to be like the kingdom of God. It's our own lack of imagination. When we hang on to systems that are fractured and try to make the best of them and try to patch them together, when we hang on to structures and things that God is so clearly shaking, we take the good and we forget about the better. If the best we can see is our flawed system, we simply won't have the courage to reimagine and to strive for what the kingdom looks like. But what I say is just okay is not enough for us as the people of God. We want everything that God has for us and we can have it. So how do we start this process of reimagining? Well, a couple of small things. Number one, we reimagine at a deep level. The structures and the systems that we see are built on underlying paradigms. Decisions about how families should look, how economic systems should look, how nations should be structured, how uh, people should cooperate with each other. Some of those assumptions are deeply biblical and come from the heart of God, and others of them are not. We have to be people of the times who have the wisdom to look at the underlying assumptions that our very uh, societies are built on and to say, 
Some things align with the kingdom of God and other things line, align with the building of empire and profits. And our job is not to collaborate or cooperate with the things that are not designed around the kingdom of God, but to begin that shift and present different operating assumptions to a world that is in this moment seeking them. The next thing is to start to build new around the reimagining continuing to provide models and places where people can go to see a, a, a small taste of a reimagined world and so that they can come on board too and, and join in the idea of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And then the third thing I would say right now is to build new bit by bit. Sometimes when we start to look at the underlying assumptions of society, it can get a little bit daunting, if you will. But if we pick a corner that Holy Spirit is giving us, if we pick that place and we go to the deepest levels of that place, again, not settling for incrementalism in that place, but going to the underlying assumptions of that, we will find that there are other Christ followers who are called to different places. And as we do that, again, the yeast spreads through the entire dome. Andrew mentioned we have a relationship through a group called the Movement Leaders Collective. And the group of leaders in this, uh, this Movement Leaders Collective are actually stupid enough or crazy enough to believe that it is possible to shift the tracks of history by becoming movements of leaders. And so for that to happen, incremental change won't do. You can't just work around the edges. You have to uproot the whole system. And so I say, let the shaking continue. And I hope you'll join me in saying that and let everything that can be shaken fall. Let's partner with the spirit to build the kingdom of God on the only firm foundation, and that is Jesus. And so what I want to ask for you as you go into your breakout rooms for just a few minutes is I want you to ask the spirit to give you a reimagining and your corner of town, in your place of ministry, in the, the area that you work in and are most intimately acquainted with. I want you to, to spend a moment or two and then discuss it in your groups. What would the kingdom of God coming look like in that place? I'm not asking what you think you can do in the next five years. I'm not even asking what you think you can do in the next 10. What does it look like if it looked like Jesus was in charge of every aspect of that place you are. That is the imagination that we want to hold on to and work towards as we're doing our pioneering efforts in our different spheres of influence. okay if I, in the interest of cheering you on, pushed both of your images just, just a little bit. And I don't mean this by any means to say that your images aren't beautiful. I just want us to continue to dream even bigger. So I want your permission before I do, because I want this to feel good and not detrimental. I see a big smile. Andrew's iPad is very interactive. Go Go ahead. So what if instead of setting a beautiful table for your guests. What if you took apart the table that you have and invited other people to come build the table together with you? Because the thing about being a guest at a table, you only feel comfortable being there for so long. 
And so if you're no longer a guest, but you're one of the builders of the table, this is now your home. It's not just a place where you feel like you can belong, but it is your place. And so again, I think there are steps on the journey there. But when we're looking for not just what feels possible, but what would be the ultimate, I would love for every table to be built in unity and in cooperation. I think for the Truvies, I imagine a time when there, there isn't muck and mire to pull people out of. And so that everyone has a, a pretty clear path to Messiah because so many of the things of the world that, that keep us, the, the, the weeds and the thorns that choke out our life have been done away with by the body of Christ. So I want you all to keep imagining and keep dreaming as we go into this next section. And I want to talk a little bit about the evidences of the spirit in a couple of different areas. We're at a time again where the church of God uh, is considered reviled and weird and irrelevant. And that is exactly the place where we shine. We have never needed the official sanction or, or public legitimacy to prove who it is we are. Instead, we can go back to the thing that has always revealed the people of God, the evidences of the spirit that show who we are. And I wanna talk about those evidences in three main areas. And I saw a question in the chat. I'm very excited to talk about that, that question and we will have some time for questions at the end. So I'm looking forward to that. The first area I wanna talk about is unity. And I wanna talk about it from John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That passage is from one of the final prayers of Jesus. And as he was preparing to leave earth in his earthly body, um, he prayed this, fully believing that the church could accomplish this. He talks about the oneness that he shares with the Father, and we see this throughout the gospel as Jesus teaches. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They have a shared image. They have a, a shared work. Even till now, my, my Father is working. They have a shared will. I don't do anything that I don't see my Father doing. And this level of sharing is what Jesus is calling his church to, each and every one of us. That if you've seen Onia, you've seen Andrew, because they're about the same things. They care about the same things. They, they, they live out the gospel in that way. Not only are we called to this extreme level of unity and oneness, but this prayer also says that this more than anything else, is going to tell people that Jesus is who he says he is. Not anything else, but our unity. And I think at this point, it makes a lot of sense why Jesus would say this was so important. 
Because we see so much disunity both in the world and in the church. And so our unity becomes the greatest apologetic for the gospels. As a sociologist, I have studied uh, the church, yes, but I also study universities. I study government. I study the military. I study corporations. And I will tell you that there is no place that I have studied where white is not better than black, where male is not better than female, where rich is not better than poor. And the reason for that is that the church was supposed to be the first. This is the evidence we have been given to prove that the gospel is true. Our unity across every division of human origin. This is why if we look into the, the New Testament from a, a standpoint of unity, book after book and, and verse after verse is dedicated to how can we as the body of Christ reflect that unity. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul goes to great pains to emphasize our oneness, the very thing that Jesus prayed for. What is also here, and maybe a little bit less obvious, is that equally bad with disunity is false unity. It says that we want to keep the unity of the spirit. And so the unity of the spirit is going to bear the characteristics of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, and its love and joy and peace. It's also true that the spirit is a spirit of truth. And so oftentimes we have a unity that is based on hiding things from one another. We have a unity within the church because we don't talk about certain issues so we can stay united. We're not going to bring that up because it's, it's controversial to some people and we don't want to break unity. Well, that is not the unity of the spirit. The unity of the spirit requires a, a unity like the unity that was forged in Acts 15 where they had an issue about what the Gentile Christians should do. And they didn't just run off and hide. They didn't fissure into their different parts and say, we're going to go over here and you guys go over there. And that way we don't have to talk about it. Instead, they brought the issue to the group and they walked through conflict to come out the other side united. That's what unity looks like. And that is the kind of unity that can let people know that Jesus is who he says he is. That's the kind of unity that helps people understand that there's something special about this Holy Spirit that we carry, because when the rest of the world is fracturing, we don't. So unity is the first evidence of the spirit I want to talk about. The second is acts of mercy, acts of mercy. And I get this idea of acts of mercy from the Beatitudes. You see, as I said, Jesus came initiating the kingdom of God, but the people of God had no idea how to live in a kingdom culture. And that's what the Beatitudes do. They're not just things that we can pick or choose or, or say, I want this blessing, so I'm going to behave this way. No, it's a, a roadmap for how do we comport ourselves in kingdom. And the Beatitudes form what is called a chiasm, which is something that Jewish teachers used. Um, the ends look the same. And so if you were to fold it up, you would have a matching all the way down. And right in the middle 
is where rabbis would hide the most exciting tidbits, the things that they really, really wanted you to know. There are two beatitudes that are in the middle of this chiasm, and they are these. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied, is the first one. And this righteousness is not limited to a personal piety. Righteousness is a desire to see things made right. And so, yes, that goes for our relationship with God, but it also goes with our relationship to each other, our relationship to the earth. All of the relationships that encompass human life are made right through righteousness. And those of us who hunger and thirst for it, we want it more than our daily bread. We want it more than the water we drink. We feel like we can hardly exist without this coming of righteousness, without this coming of kingdom among us. And the second one is blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Putting those together, it shows us how do we act on this hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not simply by the ways that we call out evil. It's not by the ways that we fight against others. It's by the way that we show the good through acts of mercy. We see this throughout the scriptures as soon as Holy Spirit comes. One of the first things that happen is that acts of mercy burst out through incredible generosity. In Acts 2, we see that the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone in need. And they met together, breaking bread in their homes and eating with glad and sincere hearts. I'm very Pentecostal, y'all. And we talk about Acts chapter two all the time. But literally nobody says that this verse is normative while taking all of the other verses around it and saying those are normative. Maybe we should include the whole thing and say it is this act of mercy, this generosity that characterizes a life in the spirit, a life that represents a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Recall when the church was reviled by Rome, yeah, they said all kinds of bad things about them. They, they called them cannibals, but they said, hey, these people don't just feed their widows. They feed our widows too. They had wealthy Roman women who supported the early workings of the church because they were drawn in by the ways that they were loved and respected and given a place. For the first time, somebody said, you're not just the property of your husband, but that you are a creation and a, an image bearer of God with individual rights and you deserve love and respect. Bond servants on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum were joined in by the equality they experienced under heaven with those who served. And the idea that if you're both servants of God, who are you really serving? Children were given respect that they had never been given in families before. And those who had no families, those who were left exposed were adopted. These were the things, these acts of mercy that came from a hunger and thirst for righteousness gained the followers admiration and began to multiply the church. And a word about acts of mercy. These acts of mercy were done in a way that reflects mutuality that raised the respect level and the, the uh, uh, humanity of the people who were involved. See, sometimes acts of mercy can create a division between the served and the server, the people we give charity to and the givers of charity, but that violates the way of unity. Instead, we serve each other through acts of mercy, not allowing there to be an us and a them, but only an us. 
And then finally, the third evidence of the spirit is actual miracles. The working of miracles is one of the gifts of the spirit and a way that God reveals God's self to people. As Psalm 77, 14 says, you are a God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. Oftentimes miracles are, are argued for and, and said, well, we don't see them as often. So maybe they're not for today, but how could that be true? when the church needs evidence for God more than ever. I've seen miracles and I'm sure many of you have too. I've seen people we prayed for, for healing from diabetes, no longer have to take insulin. I've seen a child healed from a brain tumor. I've been in food lines where the line kept getting longer and every time you scooped into what seemed like an empty pot, the food didn't run out. God, for reasons I don't understand, has decided to work miracles through our prayers through our desiring God to do these things. And so we pray. We know now not to pray in ways that disrespect people. Not every deaf person wants to hear and not every blind person wants to see and neurodivergent people contribute to our lives and that's all okay. But for the miracles that are desired and the places where we can pray and the spirit is prompting us to pray, we must pray and we must expect to see God's spirit working. It's not to say that everybody is going to believe, but some will. Nobody, though, has the chance to believe through the working of miracles if we're not asking for them. So we pray and we ask for evidence of God working. And we see it through the evidences of the Spirit. We see it through our unity that surpasses all other, other understandings and everything that we see of unity. We see it through acts of mercy. And we see the spirit working through actual miracles that we have prayed for and received. I'd love a few more minutes in uh, breakout groups before we go to Q&A. And I want you to go back to your reimagining and the, the, the thing that you reimagined Jesus being in charge of and, and working through. Where do you need more of the spirit to see that image you created? Is it that you need more unity? and you need to ask the spirit to work towards unity? Is it that the acts of mercy that need to happen need to be different or that they need to be uh, centered? Or is it that you need to pray for actual miracles? What is the thing that you need to see the, the image that you created in your mind? love to open it up for questions. I had, we had one question in the chat and then I, after that, you can either, um, pop yourself off mute and ask a question, or if you, you know, are a little bit shyer and you'd rather not speak up, feel free to throw something in the chat. I'm happy to take questions either way. Um, but there was a question earlier about what about the rich who are outside? If we're, we're clearing up this, this muck and mire, you know, that's not necessarily keeping the rich from, um, the kingdom of God, but actually it, it kind of is. Um, and one of the things that, uh, again, has been clear to me in my, my studies of society is that the systems that we have may benefit the rich, but they're not good for the rich. Just like if we have, uh, just like we do have uh, systems of, of racial hierarchy that are, may benefit white people, but they're not good for white people. 
no system that gives us uh, unjust gain at the cost of others is a good system. And the more privilege that we have, especially privilege that is not given by God, the further it keeps us away from um, Messiah. But when that is done away with, the closer we can get to Messiah. And I'm sure, you know, you have seen um, some of the profiles of, of folks who are, are million and billionaires and the amount of work that they do and the amount to which they want to uh, control their bodies, hack their bodies to extend their lives. They're not necessarily all folks, and I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I'm going to speak for the most public ones, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who are hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God. And to the extent that they're kept from doing that, the muck and mire that surrounds us may benefit them, but it doesn't benefit them as we look at the kingdom of God. And so I would say we remove it for everybody and everybody gets a little bit closer to who Jesus is. So thank you so much for that question. That was a fantastic clarification. So, um, when Jesus spoke to Thomas and he said, you know, blessed are you who have not seen yet believe. And Thomas said, you know, I, I want to believe, help my unbelief. How do we grapple with unbelief within the church? Because um, I can't speak for others. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like it's an obstacle to my own faith journey. I want to believe, but I continually am bombarded by unbelief like Thomas. Now, everyone else may be sorted out, but how do we grapple with that as pioneers when those people that we've loved and invested, show mercy, grace, all of those things, just keep not responding and walk away? How do we grapple with that tension of unbelief and seeming discord? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that is one of the places where we need each other in the body. Um, it was said that, you know, there are, are folks on this call who have, who have seen and experienced miracles before. Maybe you haven't experienced the miracle in a while, but you should be able to go to somebody else who has, who has seen it. Maybe you're discouraged in your ministry right now, but you should be able to go to somebody else who's just like, I'm seeing fruit over here. And when we can make their successes a success for the body of Christ, something that we can all rejoice in we start to provide that um, counterbalance to each other when we are, are in unbelief. The other thing I would say, again, being uh, super Pentecostal is, is to pray in the spirit. <laughs> um, sometimes we need to, to bypass our minds. Um, and I use my mind a lot, but uh, sometimes it's not my best friend when I'm trying to believe what God is trying to do. And so sometimes I need to bypass my mind and rely on what Holy Spirit wants to pray through me, um, which I can leave that session believing in a way that I couldn't believe when I entered that session. So can I ask a secondary question to that? Because I think it, it, um, I think what you're talking about is a cultural shift there, because we have in the UK what's called tall poppy syndrome. The moment you raise your head above the parapet and say good news or or share um, encouragement, then people seemingly want to cut you down. Mm. How do we create a culture where we bring celebration rather than curse? Uh, I, I know I've probably answered that in my own statement, but I think it's a really important one, friends, that we listen to this one as well. The cultural shift that's needed in movement is celebration rather than dismantling people. Yeah. So... 
It's interesting to me to even answer this question because, as you may know, we have the opposite problem in U.S. <laughs> where, if, where if you've done anything, then you want to tell everybody what you've done about it and there will be a book contract in the offing. Um, so honestly, I think it it begins by by taking seriously the words and the this whole chapter of scripture, really, that we rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. The idea that we together are the body of Christ, that we together are a temple in which the Holy Spirit can dwell. The second that we forget that the word of God was written to a collective culture that would have seen itself as a, as a, as a group, as a family, at least at its best, there were times when it didn't, um, then we don't we don't know what to do with any of this. Our testimony and the things that we have done are not just for ourselves, they're for other people. And so some of the other things that you may have um, learned about movement, about not having a solo heroic leader, about having polycentric leadership teams where you're spreading out leadership among the APES functions and everybody has a part, that also has a part to play in it too. Because if you're structured that way, then a success is the team success. Then there's no tall poppy to worry about because you haven't done it on your own. You couldn't do it on your own. And you're one of many movements who are taking the same paradigm shift and moving it forward in the direction that God is calling us to move it forward in. And so, yeah, I think that starts to get at having a, a, a good understanding of we, we are a collective. So anything we do, we, we do together. And number two, making sure that we're not uh, valorizing solo heroic leaders. So we don't have to feel as self-conscious about bringing up our successes so that other people can be encouraged. Thank you, Anaya. There's a, a question in the chat box from Andrew. Yeah. Where does the dismantling of the table begin in a situation like the one described where a church is so divided? Is it about the leader? Is it left to those at the bottom of the heap to, to shock the powerful into seeing the truth of the situation? So, and just to give you a little, little backstory on me, I, I mentioned a couple of times I'm a sociologist. I am a sociologist who studies race, religion, and organizations. And I've spent the past two years doing research on um, diverse churches, uh, corporations, and universities. And what I find is that oftentimes uh, churches, as well as universities and workplaces, will bring in um, folks who, people of color, or in some cases women, or anybody who is not present, uh, the people who have been marginalized in this situation, and they will bring them into a place that is not prepared for them. And as a result, they experience serious harms of not being listened to, of family stress, of having the stress of trying to change an organization that's not designed for them. And so honestly, 90% of the pastors I talk to who are in that situation experience either physical or emotional signs of stress, all the way from panic attacks to having the symptoms of stroke and going to their doctor and finding out it's their workplace that's making them sick. And that should not be in the church. And so my hunger and heart is really that the um, work of changing a church is not put on somebody who is less powerful uh, in a situation, nor are they brought into a toxic environment, toxic to them, maybe not to everybody else in the environment, 
um, for the sake of, of bringing change. And so that's why this, this idea of dismantling tables. What does it look like for an organization in collaboration with others, again, to look at these underlying paradigms of the organization, the things that the organization is built on, and examine what are the things, if we were to talk about race, which is what I mostly study, um, that are reinforcing this racial hierarchy and this racial inequality, and how can we dismantle and get rid of those things and build a new foundation that is based on equity before we diversify our organization and make a place where everybody can feel comfortable. We, we have to create a sort of space that is good for people and not bring them into an, an environment that is going to harm them. And so I, I walked this through with, with several churches that we consult with. I, I just worked with a, a church who had as one of their, their founding ideas, going back to the idea of, of acts of mercy, that they were moving into a neighborhood to, to be helpers to the, that particular neighborhood. And they were mostly white and upper middle class, a very well-educated, um, you know, the most people would have had a graduate degree in this congregation, moving into a um, underserved uh, neighborhood in the middle of the city and having this idea that they came as helpers. Well, that paradigm of being helpers is not gonna lead you to mutuality. And so they, this church had a real serious problem with welcoming people who came through the door as equals. Um, and so we had to get rid of that paradigm and say, we are here as, as neighbors, as uh, partners. And as we do that, we are going to privilege what the people who have always been here say they need and they want for their neighborhood and we will hold up their hands, but we're not gonna come and initiate things. And so that shifting of a paradigm was a dismantling of a table. Instead of inviting people in, they said, what do we need to change to have a place where we can rebuild it together. And so that's just an example of that. Um, but it does start with the leader. It does not start with the less powerful people in the organization because that never works. They end up pushing against something and getting hurt in the process. So thank you for that question. Uh, an interesting myth, any of you are um, interested in exploring further what it means to be movement. And Anaya has already spoken about the Movement Leaders Collective. We are actually running a, um, some training events around missional DNA and around APES typology and around FORGE. These are a number of things that we offer uh, to people. We want to get away from the professionalized Salvation Army, may I suggest, where it's about the minister at the front doing it in a certain way. We want to believe, a bit like Carl was actually highlighting, how do we release and mobilize every believer and not yet believer? because that's the culture shift that's needed to make movement happen. But just imagine, and I am a dreamer, but imagine for a moment, if you would, that everyone linked in some way to any expression of the Salvation Army at any place felt empowered to serve broken humanity. Just imagine what that would start to look like. Imagine what it would look like if at our table, it wasn't all 55-year-old white blokes. Imagine. Well, Unashamedly, the reason we put the, the speakers together this year was we are determined to change the culture by God's grace. We believe that we need to 
do do certain things deliberately and intentionally to bring about change. That's what we're imagining for. That's what we're hoping for. And I say that recognising that I'm not quite that age range yet, but I am that gender. That's why I want to say to Anaya and to all the guest speakers this week, thank you so much for giving us of your wisdom and your time. We have been deeply disturbed, deeply challenged and deeply blessed by all of our speakers. Every single one, I think, the more I've reflected on, has been true to their gift shape. And that's a beautiful thing about God's grace as well. We never recognised who they were. When I, even I spoke to Renee and we just said, what is the Spirit saying to you? Just do it. Renee, we want to say that, well, I've already emailed you, to be honest, and asked you a question because um, we want to hear more from you. I think you are a voice that we need to listen to along with others. And we want to thank you for your graciousness and your humility. You have been exactly what I believe that you would be tonight and more than. So thank you for that. And likewise, as we reflect together, what is the point of gathering online if it doesn't have a kingdom value? What is the point of gathering together and listening this week if we don't bring about change? What's the point? You need to believe in faith that you can do this. And I absolutely believe you can. I believe that God has this.